Hello and welcome back to the Jubilee Plus podcast. I'm Abby Thomas and I'm here with another seminar from the Churches That Change Communities Conference. This is one that was recorded ahead of the conference and we're going to start by hearing from Natalie Williams who's going to introduce our wonderful contributors to us. Hi and welcome to the Mercy in the DNA seminar. First up, you're going to have me talking a little bit about how social action and mercy ministries are for every Christian. They're just a part of discipleship. And what does this look like in terms of the Ephesians 4 ministries? I know some of those titles like Apostle, Prophet may not be as familiar to everyone watching this, but I've just tried to unpack why I think that everyone, no matter what they're gifting, no matter what they're calling, is supposed to be engaging with social action and God's heart for the poorest. And then you've got a real treat from Sean Green and Joe Kay, who are at Reading Family Church, talking about how as a church leader and the person heading up social action in the church, just some of the journey they've been on. They'll be talking to you from that perspective about what they're doing in their church and what that's looking like right now as they look to get mercy in the DNA. And then Emily Williams, who's over in Southampton, will be sharing some really helpful pointers on how to engage your whole family, particularly your kids as well. If you've got kids on the journey of getting mercy in your DNA as a family and what that looks like for you as a household and for you guys personally. And then we'll finish up with Steve Horn, who's part of the Jubilee Plus team, but he's also um, a leader at Emmanuel Church in Brighton, which is a big multi-site church. And he'll be sharing some of their experiences. We hope you enjoy it as you walk with us through those four sections of this seminar. I believe that every Christian should be involved in social action. I don't necessarily mean involved in projects, but concern about poverty and justice, showing mercy, growing in compassion, kindness, generosity, welcoming strangers and people who are not like us. These are actually just parts of following Jesus. They're about being disciples. Isaiah 58 makes it very, very clear that we can do religious duties and be totally missing the heart of God. It talks about, you know, well, we're fasting and we're doing the very things you've asked us to do, God. A a modern equivalent might be to say, well, we are praying and worshipping and reading our Bibles and we go to church on Sunday and we go to midweek church life and we go to prayer meetings. But actually, if we haven't caught God's heart for the hungry, for the thirsty, for the downtrodden, for the abused and exploited and oppressed and marginalised, then we're actually missing something of the heartbeat of God. And this is true for all Christians, not just for a select few who feel really passionate about it. You know, and in case we think, well, that's just Isaiah 58, we see it in James, don't we, in chapter 1, verse 27, where he says true religion is taking care of widows and orphans. Um, He does mean specifically widows and orphans, but also they're examples of the type of people who are most vulnerable in that culture and in that context. So we need to think about, well, well, what's the equivalent? It might still be widows and orphans, but there'll be others too. The true religion is actually taking care of them. But also in Luke 12, we, we see it where Jesus actually says to his disciples that they should sell their possessions and give to the needy. That's in verse 33. And so often when I think of Jesus saying, sell your possessions I think about him saying it to the rich young ruler where he says sell all your possessions but actually in Luke 12 he's not talking to one person he's talking to his followers sell your possessions so you can give to the needy but even if that's not enough we could just look at Matthew 25 where Jesus again makes it really clear that how we treat the hungry the thirsty the stranger those in prison those who are sick is actually how we are treating him But despite how clear this is in the Bible, often we uh, can get into a habit of thinking or we'll be around other Christians who think that concern about poverty and justice is just for a select few. People who think of it a bit like youth work, where some in the church are called into youth work and youth ministry and most of us are just really glad they're doing it and we think it's great they're doing it and we're grateful for them, grateful to them, but we personally don't feel we need to get involved. I think social action is way more like worship. In fact, I think it is worship. But I think like worship, it's actually very clear in the Bible that it's something that all Christians are called to. And like I say, maybe this is where projects 
great as they are, maybe don't serve us that well in this particular way because it kind of gives us a way to make social action a department of, of church life where some are involved in that department and others are involved in like the youth department or, or a different department. And it kind of means that the majority can say, well, actually, that's not me. I'm really glad you do it. Whereas when we think of it like worship, we're like, oh no, all of us need to worship. And of course, some are especially gifted to lead us in worship, but all of us are called to worship. So that is how I think of social action. And I think it's one of the reasons why we need to move beyond projects, not to do away with projects. In my own church in Hastings, we run eight social action projects and they're so helpful. I'm so glad we do. I'm glad we have like a bustling social action life in the church. But actually, we, we need to see social action as a heart issue for every single one of us, for every disciple, for every follower of Jesus. It is, it is a heart issue. Jesus actually even said to the Pharisees who were observing a lot of religious duties. I mean, they were keeping a whole bunch of rules. But in Matthew 23, verse 23, Jesus said to them, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, mercy, justice, and faithfulness. Mercy and justice there brought together and called by Jesus the weightier things. Now, Ephesians 4, verse 11 says that God has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds or, um, shepherds or pastors and teachers to equip us as the body of Christ to build up the church and to help us to mature. So I would say we need a stronger connection between the Ephesians 4 ministries and social action in our churches if we're to really get mercy in the DNA. So apostles, for example, I guess uh, those of us who are familiar with that sort of language in our modern day church context would probably think of apostles as the top. Um, you know, I know we don't like to talk in hierarchies and we probably shouldn't, but apostles are the ones who have oversight usually of many, many churches. In your tradition, they might go by a different name. But nevertheless, in Ephesians 4, it talks about apostles. Um, even apostles aren't exempt from caring about the poor. They're not exempt from it because in Galatians 2, we get to read about this exchange that's taken place between Peter and Paul, where Peter has said to Paul, you know, yeah, great that you're now going to the Gentiles, but remember the poor. And Paul says, it is the very thing I was eager to do. Paul got it that just because he was an apostle and perhaps chief of apostles and super apostle, you know, that actually remembering the poor was still part of his mandate as an apostle. Prophets... We see in Acts 11, Agabus the prophet letting the people of God know a famine is coming. Prophets weren't separated from social action. They were involved in caring about those in poverty. They were involved in foretelling what was going to happen. It's so important that we have prophetic voices speaking into our churches and our social action and our communities. Our communities may not know what to do with it, but it's so important that we don't see, well, the prophets are over there and the activists are over here and they prophesy and we do mercy. No, let's get more prophetic input. We recently in my church had a brilliant evening where we invited our social action leaders and their teams and the people in our church who are recognised as having a really strong prophetic gifting and we got them together for an evening. And we do that as a Jubilee Plus team. Every year we have a prayer and prophecy day where our team invites in prophetic people uh, to come, like our friends who are prophets, to come and speak into what we're doing. And Martin Charlesworth, when he founded Jubilee Plus, put this in from the very start, where the next day the team stays together and we work out what do we need to stop as a result of what the prophets have brought to us. We weigh it, we test it, and we, we think, do we need to stop anything? Do we need to start anything? Do we need to do anything a little bit differently? It's actually how the first book, The Myth of the undeserving poor that Martin and I wrote came about because we um, heard from the prophets God was saying now is the time to write and we'd had a sense ourselves that we needed to write but then this word came now it's the time God is saying get on with it put pen to paper so to speak and then the evangelists how crucial is it that we have evangelists involved in our social action, but also in equipping the church to bring good news to those in poverty. You know, Jesus himself quoted Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me to bring good news to the poor. We need evangelists to help us bring not just immediate 
uh, help, which is vital, and we must do that, but also to bring hope for all eternity. We need evangelists in our projects who are gifted people at sharing the love of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus, and leading people to Jesus so that we are offering people both help for their immediate crisis and their eternal crisis, hope for today and hope for forever. And we need pastors. We need people who can be in it for the long haul, faithful, reliable, plodding, often in the background, often unseen, walking that journey with people over many, many years. I know in my own life, actually, it's been the people who have me around for dinner over and over and over again, where I feel like I'm part of their family almost. I feel like, you know, they're, they're my dear friends who are walking with me, discipling me, helping me. And we need pastors in our social action because often what happens is people um, might become a Christian from a chaotic background or a background of poverty. Many of you will know that's my own story and actually need those faithful people to walk alongside them. And often what happens is it might be the person who runs the food bank or the debt centre or whatever is asked, will you walk alongside them? But often the people who lead those things are kind of pioneers and are um, off to the next thing and building uh, their team. And, and so maybe aren't always the people most gifted to walk alongside people who need, well, like we all do really, that long-term faithful discipleship to help us mature into oaks of righteousness, which is God's vision for us. Matthew 9, Jesus talks about the people, the crowds being harassed like sheep without a shepherd. People um, of all walks of life, but especially those whose lives are very broken and very chaotic in any number of ways, need the shepherd pastors to come along where they're harassed like sheep without a shepherd and to shepherd them and to pastor them. And then finally, teachers. We need a good, solid, robust theological framework for what we do when it comes to mercy and justice. We need to be able to help other Christians around us understand that actually this is just part of following Jesus. It's not something that I'm just really passionate about and you don't have to care about. If you love Jesus, you will love those who are in poverty, those who are vulnerable, marginalised, oppressed and enslaved too. So we really need all the Ephesians 4 ministries in our social action projects, but also equipping the church into maturity, into the fullness of Christ, so that we will know we all have a part to play in bringing compassion, generosity, kindness, mercy, justice, welcome, all these things, friendship, to those who are trapped in poverty or injustice. Mature social action in our churches looks like all of us on a journey together in following Jesus, in becoming more and more like him. And the Ephesians 4, those who are gifted with those ministries are there to help us and they need to get more involved and we need to invite them in more and more. So now that you've heard a little bit there from me about getting mercy in the DNA and what that looks like across every calling in the church, now we're going to hear from Sean Green, who leads Reading Family Church, and Joe Kay, who heads up their social action there. They've just got some really helpful pointers. They're going to mention to you some of the Jubilee Plus resources that have helped them. I swear we didn't put them up to that. They just happen to have included that. But I think what they've got to share is going to be really helpful as you look to get mercy in the DNA of your church. Hi, my name is Sean and I've been leading the team here at Reading Family Church for the last 22 years when we planted the church back in 2001. Uh, later on, in a few moments time, I want to introduce Jo. Uh, she's on our team. Jo's job changed this year. She's helping us to re-engineer from a staff perspective and the things that we do as a church. So it helps us to be a church for the poor. So before I introduce Joe, I thought it would be helpful just to let you know what the thought process is for changing uh, Joe's job earlier in this year. When we started the church in 2001, numbers of us in the planting team had experienced poverty growing up. And so we just had this inbuilt desire uh, to care for the poor, love the poor. So in the early years of the church, we started projects in-house we realised it was actually quite hard. We didn't know too much. So then we started partnering with local Christian charities, 
And we did that for quite some time, somewhere 15 or so years, with various measures of success, energy levels came and went. And we got to a point where we'd even built a community team. We thought that was the right way of doing it. And we realized that this group of people who were on our staff uh, could be focused, give themselves to that. But about six or seven years ago, we were at a Christian festival, Catalyst Festival, David Devonish, who would be influential for us. He had this key prophetic word for us as a church. And he called us out in the middle of this festival. All of us were leaning forward. And he said, Reading Family Church, don't forget, remember the poor. And it was one of these moments where everyone from our church, our ears are pricked up. There was instantly a recognition that this was important to us. So after that event, uh, numbers of us sat down and said, what does that mean? How are we working out? It wasn't a surprise. We had that desire. But then we did a little bit more soul searching in terms of you know, what have we built? And then we realized that what we'd had actually is that we had lots of projects for the poor, but we weren't a church for the poor. Uh, we didn't have that language then. We've since picked that up from Jubilee Plus, uh, where, uh, where we are today. But um, it, that, was the, that was what we're thinking. Wow, we've got lots of projects for the poor, but we are not a church that is for the poor. We realised that a lot of our faith and our activities were all about bringing transformation in a room on a Sunday. It wasn't our intention, but when you stood back and thought about that, honestly, that, that is what we were trying to do, rather than out in the community. So there were some soul-searching moments there, the kind of big gulps, and then COVID smashed in uh, and then dismantled everything we'd built for 19 years. And what was really heartening all through COVID, and this is a testimony of lots of churches, I reckon, is actually, so although our room was dismantled, actually our heart for the poor was still there and was still healthy. And it was easy to mobilize people to engage and to help. And so as we came out of COVID, starting meeting back in person two years ago now, we sat down and realized we needed to make some more structural changes. So one of the things we did, we dismantled our community team, of which Joe was part, and we said, actually, that's counter Joe. It isn't really helping. Joe touch on that a little bit more. But before we get to Joe, there was just three things I want to underline. If you're listening now, maybe you're a team leader or more likely you're someone who's got a real passion for the poor. And there's team leaders or pastors, elders or people of influence that you want to help shape and help them on that journey. There's three things I'd want to say as a team leader with a heart for it. This is what I recognized. The first thing is that it is helpful for everyone to acknowledge that healthy church life is really quite noisy. And there's lots going on. And that noise of a healthy church tends to muffle the voices of the poor. Um, people like me, senior pastors, want to make sure that the church has got a varied diet, that we, we're a charismatic church. Charismatic church life is important to us. Diversity is important to us. Evangelism, church planting, global mission is important to us. Sexual ethics is growing, important, taking headspace, as well as discipleship, life groups, youth, all of that stuff creates a diet for a church. But you realize that in that very diet, you can miss the important food group of caring for the poor, which is clearly there all through scripture. It just gets lost in the diet of a church. And all the time, Sunday is coming. So you do need to acknowledge there's lots of noise. But the issue is that being a church for the poor is vitally important. We see that all through scripture. So the first thing I, I found it for me, we have to acknowledge church is noisy and therefore we need to really treasure the prophetic. I don't just mean the ones or twos on Sunday mornings, that sense of prophetic bigger picture when it's God's voice speaking into a church. And those prophetic moments like we had through David Devonish and other ones, are moments that somehow we need to change from a prophetic moment to a prophetic season, a whole season where we're catching God's heart, not just a one-off as a sermon series, not even just a four to six week sermon series, but a, a much longer season. I'm realizing it can take like 18 months really to get something needed into the life of the church. It takes time. It was that for uh, diversity and inclusion around race and class 
and, and all those kind of things. It just takes time. And so you're trying to go from a prophetic moment to a prophetic season. And ultimately, that does come down to people. Um, Joe is part of that. There's others before her. Natalie is helping us. How do we have a prophetic season where we are reminded again in the business, the noise of church life, that this is and continues to be important and close to God's heart? And I guess we're all on this conference today is because senior pastors, uh, team leaders, those with influence in church time, we need to help them just underline, don't forget. I want to say again, you know, we need to underline this. Don't forget, remember the poor. In the business of church life, uh, when the prophetic comes, don't forget, underline that, uh, remember the poor. So as I said, Joe Kay is, that's the context, that's the background for the changing Joe's role earlier this year. And she's just going to come now and just talk about some of the things that she's been doing to help us restructure ourselves. Uh, Joe was leading the, our CAP Debt Centre and she's kind of transitioned out of that. Someone else is now leading that and she's got more of a ranging road helping us to remember the poor. Over to Joe. Hi everyone, my name's Joe, and I'm just going to use the next few minutes to share a bit of our story, which will be different to yours, but hopefully be of some encouragement as you push on on this journey of being a church that really loves, cares, includes and puts first the poor. So my story is that we joined RFC, Reading Family Church, just um, during COVID, and it was really strange to join then, but it was also quite strange to join with an existing CAP centre. So I came on staff straight away and joined all the others on the community team who were doing like outreach to schools and we had a toddler group and a drop-in job club and a Friday group for people who are on the fringes of church plus lots of links to local charities um, and the thing that I really noticed is that we are RFC is a really generous church financially we're quite a big church um, in my experience and yeah so really very caring of the poor, but just didn't know them, didn't see them, didn't bump into them. We're a kind of typically middle-class church, racially diverse, but socio-economic kind of flatline, really lots of graduates, lots of professionals in the church. And so the opportunity to me was for people to actually meet the poor. And I always remember Shane Claiborne saying something like, it's not that the church don't care about the poor, is they don't know them. So I felt like when I moved on from running the CAP Centre here at the end of last year, part of my role might be to help form some more bridges into the community. So we also had another charity called uh, Chapter 2, which my husband set up, whereby men in the church can mentor lads growing up without dads. So it was quite a lot of activity, but only done by a fairly small number of people. It didn't quite feel yet that... Uh, caring for those on the edges on there who are struggling was kind of a key part of discipleship here. So that was the opportunity. Okay. So what did we do? What did we do? Well, uh, it was my great privilege to get to hear from and, um, and read the books of Natalie Williams when I was working with CAP. She is hugely influential in the work that they do. And so um, when I realised that it might be possible for her to visit, I was like, yes, great. So we invited Natalie to come and visit the church at the beginning of this year and meet with all the different people who were doing things in the community. That was really good and encouraging. Uh, and it was clear that we'd made a good start. Um, and the next thing felt the next thing to do felt like um, doing the social action workshop that Jubilee Plus offer. It's really straightforward to do. We did it ourselves just on an evening here in our offices um, and invited as many who, as who wanted to come and share what they thought the church should be doing and what they would like to do themselves. And from that, we were able to pick out kind of key themes um, from which to see what might be a good next step. We know that the church meets in an area of high deprivation. Poverty, isolation and drugs are the key three things that a local councillor picked up and certainly things that I'd seen in my many years of working with people in CAP. So um, I was then thinking, well, what are we good at in this church already? And we're really strong on our faith. People really love Jesus here. Uh, we're really strong on friendship um, with life groups, with RFC3s, with social events. 
people really look after each other here and that is something we can share with those around us. And the third thing is food. Most of our gatherings have food in one way or another. And so as I was thinking about poverty and how poverty is, it's not just money, is it? It's poverty of, of finance is one thing, sure. Poverty of relationships is another. Poverty, spiritual poverty is a third. And those three things match up. So sharing food um, helps if you're struggling financially. Sharing friendship helps if you're struggling with isolation. And sharing faith helps if you are spiritually poor, if you're feeling like desperate on your knees, like there's no hope. And so I've made this wheel thing that I hope that uh, we'll be able to share with you to show how we are now thinking about addressing poverty in those three different categories with different kinds of projects that really enable us to meet with people that are struggling and share our lives. So we're with people. We're not just doing things to them. We are with them and walking with them. Um, so yes, having done the workshop and finding out that food and Whitleywood, where we meet, is a kind of on the heart of large numbers of people in our church, we had the opportunity to set up a food pantry with um, Faith Christian Group, who happens to have a new CEO who used to be um, my line manager here at RSC. So it just we see the hand of God over all of our best endeavours as he's behind the scenes, linking things up, and making opportunities for us to step into. So um, just three weeks ago now, we set up a pantry in Whitney Wood, whereby uh, local people, very hyper-local, people who live in that particular area of town can come once a week, pay £5 and have the dignity of choosing 10 items of grocery, which we are collecting as a church and buying stuff, some stuff in through the likes of Fair Share. Uh, also having an attached kind of pop-up cafe where people can get free tea and coffee. We're addressing, trying to start addressing the idea of um, poverty of relationships through making friendships, through spending time with people. So the two different things can come, both help financially through the pantry and also a time to spend and be welcomed and loved by the team. So we've got quite a big team to do quite a small job because we really want to give people a great um, experience. And already we're finding people are looking forward to coming, which is just lovely. Um, I'm hoping that we will be able to invite them into our prayer time, maybe invite them along to Alpha in time as we start to build more friendships. Um, so, yeah, that's for the future. But one of the things that came, another thing that came out of the workshop was the idea of finding six people. So it's not just a project that somebody on staff might do um, because they fancy it, but something that six people in the church could really own. And we've got probably eight now in the pantry who are raring to go. And so my hope would be that in time we can start new, or I can kind of just catalyze, you know, start up a new project, but other people in the church very happily own and run it so that thereby more and more people across the church can be involved in um, just walking alongside people who are struggling. Because we know that once you've seen the effects of poverty, once you've heard somebody say they live on their own and they're not going to see anybody for the next three days, they're really looking forward to the pantry because it's the only thing they do that week, you can't forget that. And so I, my hope and heart is that we would increasingly have projects owned by the church members, but that would facilitate more people to get to know people in our town. So we can really understand what people are facing and not just assume we know what they need. So there's loads of learning for us. Um, we're also in a town where it's very multicultural. Lots of people come um, visit, come to stay in Reading. And so we're, the next thing we're thinking of is something for people who are coming with English as a second language. So something like a English conversation classes, an eye cafe, that kind of thing. So we're going to have a taster event this term with a view to starting next term so not trying to start everything at once start things slowly start things gradually build in some strength so okay and and the reason why we chose the eye cafe because that was another thing that came out of the social action workshop um, we took advantage of the jubilee plus materials for kids and had our all of our uh, rfc kids run through that overflow 10-week program last term so it's not just the idea that adults need to care for the poor those in need who are struggling but really we're starting to build in the idea that Jesus cares for people when they're really struggling and we want our kids to be to know that and to, to grow up in that um another thing for this term or maybe next is to run an, uh, the 
Ghibli Plus MOT. We are just grabbing all the all the stuff we can because it's so helpful. I'd really recommend using the tools that are available for church partners. Uh, and that will then see, are we on the right track? Do we need to make a quarter turn or a, a slight, slight different way of doing things? Or are we really heading towards making a, an actual tangible difference in our community and in our church? Okay, so I'll just finish with a few questions for you to consider. Maybe you're miles further along the track than I am, in which case I'm cheering you on. Well done. Brilliant. Um, or maybe you're just on the first few stages. So the question is, where is your church on the discipleship journey? Is everyone finding their place, doing life with those people that Jesus would have prioritised, those people in need? Or is that something that we leave to the experts? Is that something that we think the council ought to be doing something about? Or is that something they just give money to rather than time and energy? Second question, how are you currently needing God's love for the poor into every part of church life? Sometimes it is activity, sometimes it is projects, but also what you teach. How do you talk about this on a Sunday or through your life groups? Uh, is this just, what I don't want here is for Care for the Poor just to be Joe's project, just a niche thing that, you know, she cares about, that's nice, isn't it? When actually we know it's running right through God's word, it's at the heart, it's at God's heart. Um, so not something we can ignore or leave to a couple of people who are passionate about it. So how are you currently needing God's love for the poor into every part of church life? That's the second question. Uh, I've certainly found it really helpful to be given a couple of sermon slots, maybe one a term, so I can keep I can keep mentioning it. And then other people can bring their stories in when they're preaching as well. And the third one, what's next? Do you have a plan for taking the next step? Whether that's increasing your giving to the poor, whether that's bringing in a new activity or reviewing what you're already doing. Because we know that church life is so busy. Um, and as, as Sean said, that word of don't forget, remember the poor, was really key in our church because our church is busy. There's lots going on. There's lots of needs. And we're not a single church issue. We're grappling with all sorts of things at the same time. But care for those who don't speak up for themselves can easily get forgotten. And so if you're passionate, which I'm assuming you are, about this area... What's your next step? You, being intentional is key. Okay, and then just finally, a tiny story. I was reading a book called The Hole in Our Gospel, uh, and he mentions there a church leader in Africa, I can't which country it was, I'm afraid, but they were basically a, a church of 100-ish, with a tin roof, single light bulb, very poor, but they had tons of projects going on, tons of ways of reaching into their community, uh, widows and orphans from AIDS victims, all sorts of different things going on. And the pastor of that church said, a church in four walls is no church at all. We know that Jesus spent his time on the streets with people. He spent his time eating with people that nobody else ate with. He spent his time talking to people that other people would not be seen talking to. Uh, and we want to be that kind of church, don't we, where Jesus would feel at home and where we're putting a smile on his face by the way that we prioritise those people that he cares about and he sees even if no one else does. So, yeah, let's just pray. Father God, thank you so much for your heart your incredibly wide and inclusive, loving heart that um, sees all the people in our towns who are struggling, who no one else sees. And may we be churches who come alongside them with your love and your grace and mercy, reaching them not just with practical needs, not just with uh, friendship, but with your love as well. May we present a full gospel, really good news to the poor. Some great questions there from Joe for us to ponder and think through. And now Emily Williams is going to help us to think through actually how we use our whole, whole lives and our homes actually for the good of serving others, particularly the most vulnerable. She's going to make us a little bit uncomfortable. And so if you've got families around you, kids in particular, she is going to be so helpful. But I don't have kids and I found it really helpful just to listen to her provocation. There's lots that I can apply, even as someone without children. But for those of you with children, I think you're going to find this really helpful, but also really challenging. 
Hi, my name is Emily. I'm with my family. I live in Weston, which is an outer city, lower income housing estate community on the east side of Southampton, with within the 5% most deprived annual comparisons in England. And as a family, we're heavily involved in a community centre in the centre of the estate, and we're in the process of starting a church plant from it. In this section of the seminar on how we get mercy into the DNA of our churches and projects, I get to talk about how we engage our kids in mercy and take our families with us on mission, which is something that we've been figuring out these last few years. It's a huge topic, but I think like with most things in the Christian life and in parenting, we need to ask God to start with us. Because by the nature of DNA, it's passed down from one generation to the next. If we want the next generation to understand something and catch a vision for it, we need it to be deep in our DNA, especially if we're the parents or the leaders of something. So let me ask you from the start, is it? Is mercy in your DNA? Does it play a part in the decisions you make as individuals and families and churches? Does it shape the way you do life? Let me take you back to 2012 for a minute. The day after we got engaged, we went to meet the vicar. The first question this lovely vicar asks is, so why do you want to get married? Seems a standard question when talking about marriage. And I gave probably the standard answer. Because I love him, I said. This vicar smiled at me, gave me a little head tilt, and he said, that's nice. But that's not enough. Tell me more, he said. So after a long, awkward pause, whilst I pondered the real reason I wanted to marry the penniless missionary musician that I'd chosen, the answer I came up with was because we could do more for God together than apart. We could be more effective for God's kingdom as a team. Maybe not the most romantic answer, but the vicar was much more happy with that. We started out strong pumped for mission with some pretty strong convictions. We wanted an open home, we wanted to fill it, we wanted the biggest dining table we could get. We wanted our home and our lives to be geared up to serve others. However, in lockdown, eight years, four kids into marriage, a guy we knew was having a bad time with his mental health. Being isolated and living alone wasn't helping and my husband was looking for ways we could accommodate him in our already pretty full house. Just the prospect of another person in the house stressed me out no end. Which you might say is fair enough, and it is, only we know what we've got the grace for. But as I prayed about it, I realised that lockdown had allowed me to get comfortable in my home, with my family and my routines, and letting anyone else in meant things would change. I realised how small my view of the world was becoming and how comfortable I was with that. God woke me up to how I had become cold to mercy, and it wasn't okay. Off the back of this, he woke us up again to what we'd known from the start were the things he'd called us to. And he calls us all to, to love mercy, to build community, to spend our lives for others. So we made some big changes. We moved our four young kids to a neighbourhood with a high level of need, schools with bad offsets, a place people would look at you funny when you said you were choosing to move to. People in our area have a 12-year lesser life expectancy than elsewhere in a city. Crime is higher, housing is smaller and less desirable. We made this choice because we wanted to be intentional about our desire for mercy. You might say, well, that's a bit extreme. You could have just done that where you were. And maybe we could have. But we wanted to be intentionally positioned in such a way that we could not let ourselves forget the poor. So that being comfortable would be harder to do because, because of the obvious need around us. People often say, well, I'm not called to live in an estate or go to the nations. Having Mercy in our DNA does not mean we're all going to become overseas missionaries or church planters, but it does mean that we may all need to reorder some things in order to make sure that mercy and mission are front and centre in our lives. If something is in our DNA, it will affect us in every way. It's in every part of us. Moving was a big decision, but it doesn't stop there. Getting mercy truly into the DNA of my family involves continual discipleship and demonstration. 
hundreds of daily heart decisions to choose to be generous and merciful to my husband, to my kids, to my neighbours, to the beggars on the streets, to the builders who just screwed me over financially, the guy who just crashed into my car last week and wrote it off. Is mercy affecting your life? Is it in your DNA? If it isn't, there's not much chance it's going to make it into our kids and the younger generations. So first and foremost, how do we get mercy into the DNA of our kids and take them on mission with us? We've got to ask God to start with us, to change our hearts. And then secondly, another area I'm often asking God to change that can be a barrier to discipling my kids and to mercy and living like Jesus is my view on parenting. The bad things I've picked up, you know all the things that our parents did that we swear we'll never do, but then we actually do all the time. But also sometimes the seemingly wise but non-biblical things I've picked up along the way. I remember a conversation in the church toddler group when I just had our first daughter. The mum was discussing how her son had had some biscuits and he's willingly shared them with his friends, leaving only one for himself. This had worried her and she was discussing how she could teach him to look out for himself how there had to be a boundary to how much he was allowed to give. What should she tell him, she asked. To give one biscuit maybe from his little packet? Maybe it was two to share and two to keep. It was quite the in-depth conversation on biscuits, but it shone some light on her fear as a parent. And maybe it shines light on what we can fear as well as parents and leaders, that there won't be enough, that we won't have enough time or resource or energy Our kids won't have enough. And I think there's two practical things in this. Firstly, going back to the point about starting with us, we also need to prioritise keeping ourselves topped up and our families topped up. We have a protected day a week where we all recharge. We teach our kids to say no when they need to. There are things we can do to be wise with what we have and make sure we don't run dry, particularly emotionally and spiritually. But the second practical thing we can take from this little boy with his biscuits is to understand what we and our kids really have. He had one little packet of biscuits, but the reality was that if he gave more away, he had a caring, well-resourced mum with a big mummy bag full of snacks who would find him something else to eat. He didn't lack. His generosity was not going to leave him empty. And if there's anything that God has taught us as a family and continues to amaze us with, is that as we pour out, we're not left empty. As we've given time, resource, money, we have never been without. Because like the little boy, we have a well-resourced father who, okay, wants us to be wise to some extent, but he also tells us in Proverbs 19, whoever is kind to the poor lends the Lord and he will reward them for what they have done. Instead of letting our parenting be motivated by fear, how can we lead our kids with faith? How can we reprogram ourselves and the younger generations away from an individualistic attitude and scarcity mindset that we're taught to the self-sacrificing attitude Jesus modelled? I've got a friend and he said whenever he makes a cup of tea, he always gives his favourite mug to someone else. Not because the other person would necessarily notice or care, but because it helped him to be reminded to prefer others, to give them the best. It positions his heart for mercy. Are there little things we can do ourselves and with our kids to daily remind us to keep mercy at the forefront of our minds, to remind us to empty ourselves because there will always be enough for us? So how do we get mercy into the DNA of our churches and include all ages and stages? By asking God to start with us to change our hearts, to release the expectations we had about our lives and our children and get realigned with the stuff Jesus really wants us to be teaching our kids. And once we've got that heart change, practically, how do we do mercy and go on mission together as a family? Well, just three really quick things that we've been learning. Firstly, we've got to make it a priority. Lots of parents would say that their lives are dictated by their kids' activities, taxing them around. We've got four kids, they're all pretty busy. But again, if we really want dear mercy in our kids' DNA, we need to make sure it takes priorities in our calendars. 
What if we allow mercy and mission rather than music lessons or sports teams to dictate our lives a bit more? By the nature of what mercy requires of us, it doesn't fit into a calendar. It's not neat. It can't be scheduled. For us, this is meant clearing things out rather than adding them in so that we can be available to show mercy, so our door can be open, so we can be open to interruptions. The thing about mercy is we try to put it in a box. We make it a thing we do rather than people we are. If we want to see everyone caught up in it, it has to be about people and not projects. It has to be a heart and priority change, not just a calendar rejig. Mercy becomes so much more sustainable when it's a way of life rather than just another thing in our already busy schedule. Second practical way to go on mission with our kids, get them involved. Seems obvious maybe, but are we actually including our kids in the things that we're doing um, or are they just an accessory we bring along to sit in the corner whilst we do the mercy? When we first moved to our estate, the first Saturday of the month, a group of the local Anglican church went out to Littepick. My then seven-year-old and his friend from across the road, they loved it. It was a really accessible way of including many ages and stages in mission. Are the ways we can create opportunity for people at all ages and stages to get involved? Are there opportunities within our projects for apprenticeship style learning, for teenagers to get work experience or those coming out of school to gain skills, for kids to play a part in some small way? Where our projects become one-dimensional, so will our teams and those we reach. Maybe we only operate nine to five, therefore we exclude anyone who's not free at that time. Are there any tweaks you can make to your project or the way your church does mercy to include as many different life stages as you could, which in turn will attract as many different life stages from your community? And if your church isn't currently running anything that you feel you can get involved in, what other opportunities are there within local churches or projects? As a family, we volunteer for a Christian charity called Safe Families, which exists to bring belonging and hope to struggling families. This has been a beautiful way of including our children in mercy, being able to watch them love and include other children in our family and develop empathy and understanding for people. Third way we can ensure all ages are involved in mercy is by allowing the kids to take the lead. As parents, we've obviously got a responsibility to lead our kids, the same way church leaders have a responsibility to lead their flock. But part of leadership is modelling, serving and following well. Over the summer, um, one of my daughters and one of her not yet Christian friends from the estate had been planning a rock band that they want to start for kids who can't afford music lessons. What was a couple of girls dreaming in our kitchen together has the potential to shape the future of our project and impact lives if we're open to it. Jesus welcomed children and told us to learn from them. How can we do this in our projects to ensure that the next generation are really released? How can we get out of the way to make space for fresh vision and creativity in our projects? So to round us up, if we want something in our kids' DNA and in the next generation of our churches, we need to model it. Not just one Sunday a year when it's Mercy Sunday or whatever we want to call it. Research says a baby needs a thousand repetitions to learn a word. By the time he's a toddler, he might need 50 repetitions. And when he's in preschool, he may only need a few repetitions to master it because the brain connections have been laid out. Parents help this process by singing the same song, reading the same story, reciting the same nursery rhyme. As leaders and parents, are we singing the songs of mercy and justice, generosity and sacrifice to our kids? again and again and again, so that at every stage in their life, they recognize it, they can copy it until it becomes part of who they are. I've got many fears as a parent and as a leader to the next generation, but my biggest is that they would miss out on really knowing Jesus. We can't know Jesus if we don't know mercy. Let's ask ourselves, parents, leaders, are we raising religious kids who know how to attend church and do the right actions to the kids' songs, then maybe follow the correct path of uni and a good job? Or are we raising kids who know what true religion is? To visit the fatherless, the widows and the afflicted, to empty themselves for the sake of the poor, to show mercy. 
How do we do mission as family? Biologically and church family, we get it in our DNA. We make it a priority. We allow our kids to participate and we do it over and over and over because it's who we are. Wow, what a provocation there from Emily about what it can look like for us to get mercy in the DNA in our personal lives, in our home lives, and to live as those who come from a place of faith and not fear. I found that so helpful. And now for the final part of this seminar, over to Steve Horn, who's based at Emmanuel Church in Brighton. It's a large multi-site church, and he's going to talk about what it's looked like and just some of the things they've done to get mercy in the DNA and to engage with lots of people from across church life in getting this deep rooted into all of us as an issue of discipleship. Hi, uh, my name's Steve Horn, and I am an elder and pastor at uh, Emmanuel Brighton. And um, I'm looking at this uh, subject of how we get uh, mercy through in the DNA of the church. And um, I, I really wanted to begin with reflecting on an evening um, a number of months ago, where we had three people in our social social action ministries baptized one evening and at the end of the evening a couple who have carried social justice and social action in our church for probably 40 years said oh this is it we we now have social action in the heart of our church and um did make me think you know why have they said that now uh, on this night and um and reflected what is the journey that has got us to this point particularly? And I think there's there's been a number of strands, a number of things that have happened. The first probably is the fact that through COVID, we stopped everything and we were forced to really think, what are we going to start doing again? And as we emerged out of COVID, one thing uh, as elders and leaders, we said we would do was obviously continue to preach the gospel, which we still do. Um, to also decide to open up our services so we can do that, um, but also our small group life and community. And so that was a very clear one, community. And then the third one was to carry on the, the care work that we were doing. We set up the, the thing called care to care for people who were affected by COVID. And that basically became care for our city, which was an umbrella term essentially to, to describe everything we do uh, to care for the city and care for the poor and uh, marginalised of our city. And the way we did that was um, actually at a Jubilee Plus event, maybe um, just as we were emerging, um, I listened to the fact that we need to partner. And I think my reflection of being involved with our social action for many years before COVID is it was, we were quite hard and we had to close a number of ministries. We had a very successful uh, sort of housing unit, but just realised that it, we weren't moving people out of homelessness, um, that they were leaving, but often coming back in. And um, so we started some employment pathways and they were great. We ran a few businesses, cleaning, um, cafe, but again, um, we weren't very good at running businesses, I suppose. And um, so we, we, We've done a number of things. I think partly because as a church, um, Simon Petty's word, remember the poor, that has been in the DNA of our church since it started many years, long before I got here. And um, and it's always been there. But I think it has, what that has meant is we do social action ministries and they've been very varied and um, often built to uh, enthusiasts who have a passion or hear from God to serve a different group of people. But with this Care for Our City um, and the Jubilee Plus uh, encouragement to partner, uh, one of the things we decided to do was go and talk to council and say, what actually are the priorities now? And they came up with a number of priorities, particularly around food poverty and homelessness, uh, mental health and isolation, so well-being. Um, and off, all, all, the other area was obviously youth work, children's work, uh, youth services being shut, so family life. And we basically said, right, all our social action ministry is going to going to look to meet these priorities. That meant that whatever we start doing again now, we want to make sure it does that. So essentially, we had one food bank at one of our sites. We decided let's get food banks in all of our sites. And that was a two, three year 
process journey, but we are now there that we have four food banks in our church. Uh, we also can continue to um, have a two houses, a, a, a house with a lady and her children in and a house for five guys. But again, out of COVID, we obviously lost a number of those guys out of that house. Um, guys moved on, but we weren't really able to bring guys in. So that house was uh, just had a couple of guys in it at that point. And at that point, again, with a partnership um, mind, we went to a Green Pastures conference who has supplied the house that the lady and her children were in. And what we noticed there was just the way that they had discipled leaders to lead their houses, that guys would come in and they would be mentored and enter an internship. And out of that internship, they would be given responsibility for the house. And in many of the houses, then they were now being led um, and overseen by guys who'd been in the house at the beginning. Um, and then they had this wonderful, these wonderful uh, leaders, often ladies, who would come in and manage the house, make sure it was looked after and the home was well done. And it, we came back realizing that's what we need to do. So we we essentially went and learned from someone and then thought, no, we need to do that. So rather than go back to what we're doing with the house, we said we need to get uh, a mature Christian in the house who's got lived experience, who's come through our pathways, understands our DNA and can help disciple guys coming through. At the same time, we realized that the lady who was in our other house, the Green Pastures house, she had really just come to know Jesus in a wonderful way. And she had started to tell us how we really needed to help her and what we need to do to help others. And we realized she was making a lot of sense. And essentially she, she became our housing manager. She said, look, you need to do some things differently if you really want to see people change. And she was right. And so we uh, put her um, over the house of guys that we had, but also she wanted another family, another mother to experience the blessing of the house that she'd had. I mean, basically in her childhood, she lived in over 30 homes and experienced homelessness a number of times. And the fact that she'd been able to bring up her kids in a house and stable and them to go through the same school for their life and to see the fruit of that in their own kids' lives and in their attainments and just generally their well-being, she wanted another mum to have that opportunity. So she took the brave decision to move out and make to step into independence. We helped her as a church to do that. We got some money together to help uh, fund her to do a deposit and get some private housing. And immediately she then wanted to be the person that discipled the next lady in. And she, I have to say, has become the best discipler of people in our houses, uh, the guys and the, the mums. We have another house for another church member who's allowing us to do a cheap rent. And we have another mum and she disciples her. And so we've realised she is the best pastor we've got. And then in the house, we, uh, we out of our employment, we had a guy who um, was actually living um, independently, but he he was now beginning to um, take on responsibility for the cleaning of our church and became a cleaning supervisor. And we said, why not move into our house and um, and would you help pray and help bring guys through? And so he did do that. He moved in and um, we started to move guys in. And, um, and that was an amazing journey. And I think one thing that changed that house as well was we, myself and Rob, we went in to pray with the guys in the house. Now, initially, none of them joined us. And then um, eventually we'd get one join us and then two join us. The other thing that happened was the guys in the house, a couple of the guys, including the guy who moved in, were very involved with Alpha. So they started inviting the guys in the house to Alpha because they were going. And now um, we have this wonderful prayer meeting in the mornings where, again, we sometimes have two guys, three guys. And sometimes we have everyone in the house and sometimes some guests and we get to pray and it's amazing. But what I noticed the other week was when we had a full house was they're all on Alpha. Uh, even the guy, one guy who was brought as a guest was on Alpha and they was invited into the house to pray with the guys. And again, that, that's been a fascinating thing is that these guys are taking the guy who's new on the journey that they've been on because they found peace and they found hope in that. And that's been a wonderful 
thing as well. So the houses are now connecting with Alpha and Alpha is now connecting with the houses. And again, that's that sort of DNA loop that's that we've noticed. Um, I think the other massive development was we when we started the food banks, um, we realized that where we had, we realized where we had been uh, doing lots of events to get people in our building in the evenings or to our services on Sunday, which was great. Um, suddenly we had 30, 40 households coming into our building every week for food. But actually for some of them, after um, we put debt advice and other supports and social prescribing in, and um, they didn't need that support, but they would just come for coffee and a chat. Um, and we were finding um, our volunteers were praying for them when, when they were asked to, and we were seeing God answer prayers as well. And, and we would have a prayer meeting every morning. And, but we suddenly realized this is now the front door of our church. And at that point, um, one of our interns who's very evangelistic and spoke to one our evangelist, Phil Turner, and said, look, I think we should do an alpha. I'm having loads of conversations in the food bank and people are asking about Jesus, asking about my faith. It's, it's, it's a place where we can talk about Jesus and, and they want to make the next step. And so this intern and, and Phil started a food bank on the back of our alpha. Um, people were invited to stay and to come to alpha. And they started with a couple of people um, but after after a while, that became sort of eight people. Um, we ran it another term and multiplied it to other food banks, and it became three food bank alphas. And Phil himself ha had to learn how to do alpha in that environment, and he became amazing at it. And um, and it became a, a, a first stop of alpha, where actually people became used to alpha, and then actually some of them would come to our evening church alpha. But also some would come Sundays to get invited into Sunday. Um, some people get invited to Sunday through the food bank because our volunteers, our church members. I think that was the other thing is I think where social action had been a specialism, like the housing unit, suddenly a food bank, we're just asking people to come in and just help people with food, have coffee with people. And that it, it allowed a number of people, particularly those people who had time in the day, retired um, mums, um, who have kids at school were able to come in and serve in the food banks and and suddenly they were able to engage uh, with that and then invite people in and so the church were in the food bank and then invited people to church and so again that was again a mix and the DNA coming right through and and then obviously that essentially um, ends up with again with the alpha and the food bank is you realize there are housing issues or people were um, struggling housing and so again the housing team with this lady who used to be in our house who's now our housing manager she would actually help keep people in their houses and one of the candidates that said this baptism was a lady who, who came through a food bank came onto Alpha realized that her situation of housing was great, so we brought the lady from our housing team in who happened also to be around the Alpha and realized that she needed support so we were able to actually clean her house out and there was a bit of a hoarding issue and the house were going to evict her and her son um, and we were able to keep her housing but she was also then able to continue the journey with us on Alpha. She brought her son along who had some issues, uh, mental health issues and um, Phil was able to bring in our pastoral team and our food bank team and we were able to do that journey with him as well and he came on to Alpha and so that night the lady who came through our house who now is our housing manager is getting baptized the lady that that she supported through our housing team but also discipled in Alpha she's getting baptized and her son who met some of the guys through Alpha who also do our food bank were able to support him they were getting baptized as well and I think that is what this couple saw was one of the guys that had who'd come alongside the guy with mental health issues was one of the mentors of our housing team, who was a church member who, again, had just started to really get a heart for some of the guys in the house, and he just started to support him. So, uh, again, we've seen the church come in to what we're doing, and, and I think that's why it was such a celebration of what we do. I think the other thing, just to say with Care for Our City as well, is because it was one of the three things we do every month, we wanted to go back to the church and say, this is what we're doing. We just felt like we needed to communicate more. So every month we celebrate 
our social action projects, our care for our projects. We look at food, we look at housing, we look at well-being, we look at family projects, and we celebrate changed lives. We celebrate changed uh, situations. We celebrate great partnerships and what other partners in the city are doing, and and it just gives us a great opportunity to the church to see show them what God is doing, particularly when on their news reads there's so much difficulty and strain. Um, so I think I've said a number of things there. I hope that there are some things there, but definitely having an overarching strategy that comes out of the heart of the leadership of the church. I think celebrating and communicating that well, seeing people who come through our projects become the leaders and the disciples the people in our projects again as i say i think our best pastors now are in there and i think then as well like the ephesians for getting um the the evangelists and the prophets into our food banks and allowing people to encounter jesus and hear the gospel uh again being invited to sunday by people who generally go to church every sunday who involved with our monitoring has meant that there is this lovely flow of the dna of mercy and the gospel through all our projects and through the church Thanks so much to all of those contributors and do visit the Jubilee Plus website to find out more about how Jubilee Plus can support you and your church, for example, through the Church Partner Scheme. And of course, all those resources that were mentioned in that seminar, you can find on the website if you just click on the link through the show notes. And I'll see you next time on the Jubilee Plus podcast. Underneath the shelter of your way.